Uh, if you've ever renovated a rundown house, uh, you know that there are at least three stages. The first is when you get the vision for what you want to do. That's a very exciting stage of the process. Uh, the second stage is when you figure out how you're going to pay for it. Uh, that is much less exciting. The third stage is when the demolition happens and then the new construction begins. And that's never exciting. It's beyond stressful. That's when you start to have some serious doubts about your stage one vision. Shelley and I had to do a full-blown renovation on the house where we now live. It was a real fixer-upper, uh, from leaky roof to moldy basement and everything in between. It was unfit for human habitation when we bought it, but we're living there happily now. And by the way, if you do have to do a, ma a major renovation of some kind, uh, you might consider um, watching an, an older uh, Tom Hanks movie called The Money Pit. I, I guarantee it will take, make you feel better about your own renovation. Uh, today I want to focus on the renovation that often needs to be done in our lives and in our churches. Uh, we're going to begin walking today with this man named Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is a story of a man who came from very humble beginnings to accomplish great things for the glory of God in a very dark time for God's people. Now, he was able to recruit uh, thousands of others to share his vision and to risk their time, their money, their comfort, uh, even their personal safety and uh, to help Nehemiah pursue what God had laid upon his heart. In Nehemiah, we see what it takes to be God's man, God's woman, God's church. So here's the backstory. Uh, the year was 445 BC. The city of Jerusalem was in serious trouble. About a hundred years earlier, uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jerusalem. And the temple was destroyed, the city walls were torn down, the gates were burned with fire. And thousands of Israelites were carted off uh, to Babylon as slaves. For more than a century now, Jerusalem continued to lie in ruins. Nehemiah was a descendant of those Hebrews who had been taken away from Jerusalem as captives a hundred years earlier. Now, perhaps he had sat on the laps of his grandparents many times in captivity and heard them tell stories. Oh, Nehemiah, you should have seen beautiful Jerusalem with its towering walls and splendid gates leading into the city and to the temple of God. Well, over the years, as new kings came to power, some of the Jewish slaves had been allowed to return to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was still in ruins, but it was slowly being restored. People were coming back. They were building houses. They were doing business. And the temple was rebuilt and rededicated, and people began to worship there again, as you've just been hearing in the book of Ezra. But all was not well. The wall of the city was still a pile of rubble. This was not good. A city without a wall was an invitation to be plundered. It would be like leaving your front door wide open when you go on vacation. Not a good idea. 
With no city wall, Jerusalem was vulnerable. At that time, Nehemiah was a slave in Babylon. And we'll talk more about his position in a few minutes. But for now, I'll say that he had a pretty decent life. Uh, yes, he was a slave. But he also had free room and board in the king's palace. Nehemiah ate and slept well. One day his brother visited Nehemiah. He had just come from Jerusalem. And he began to tell Nehemiah what was happening there. Even though Nehemiah had never been to, Jer to Jerusalem, he had a very strong emotional and spiritual tie to it. It was his heritage. It was the city of his ancestors. I'm sure in his dreams, it was his future home. His brother told him that the wall of the city was still down. Something stirred deep within Nehemiah. He wanted to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the city wall. He would have to start from scratch as a mere slave. He would have to travel hundreds of miles to a place he had never been before. He would have to analyze the problem, develop a strategy, recruit a team to help him, give oversight to the project, face criticism and even death threats, and get the job done somehow. The book of Nehemiah tells us how that happened. And we can learn a lot from Nehemiah about how to pursue the kind of rebuilding that is often needed in our lives and in our churches. So today we're going to see how Nehemiah got started on rebuilding the ruined walls of Jerusalem. Walls are uh, wonderful things. I, I cannot imagine that any of us would sleep well tonight if we did not have walls in our homes. Uh, walls protect us and give us security and warmth from both the meanness of the world and the terrifying storms of life that blow through. And how often have you entered these church walls in search of sanctuary? Here in this place, in times of quietness and peace, we find comfort and rest for our souls after a week of coping with all the bad news of the world and the stresses of life. And I pray that there will always be a restorative place for you like this, where people can come together in worship and in community to discover Jesus Christ in their midst. And then, when they leave, they can take the love of Christ with them to their homes, to their schools and workplaces, to every corner of your city. You see, perhaps most importantly, the value of walls is the space that is created within them. In your church life, it's a space where God appears when people gather in the name of Jesus. In your homes, it's a space where hospitality can be practiced when you invite others to join you. When you invite people into your home for a meal, you, you bring them in through the gate of your house, so to speak, inside your walls. And there, the love in your home is freely given. And when they leave at the end of your time together, they take your love to their home and something of God's love in Christ as well. The first chapter of Nehemiah shows us where rebuilding ruins is born. Nehemiah did not start with a building program. 
He started with a heart program, his own heart, first of all. The birthplace of renovation is the heart. The birthplace of renovation is the heart. And that's why I'm, I'm, I've titled this sermon, Rebuilding Ruins, It Starts in the Heart. Rebuilding Ruins, It Starts in the Heart. Rebuilding does not start with policies, doesn't start with programs, it starts with hearts, your heart and mine. Renovation in a church starts with renovation in individual hearts. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to renovate us on a daily basis, or at least I do. I have come to discover this over my years of life and ministry, how much I need the good news of the forgiveness of my sins and, and the fellowship of a savior with me. How much I need that every day. Uh, Matt mentioned in his introduction that, that I preached through Nehemiah when he was a, te a teenager. Yes, I remember it well. <clears throat> that year was 1998 <clears throat> and it was a very, actually a very dark year for me. I had not, not too long before that, been uh, diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, having had polio as a child. And my legs were failing me, and I was just crashing physically. And I began to sink into a, a, a depth of despair, you know, and, and some deep depression. And as I looked about me, I just, everything looked dark and bleak and uh, I began to fuss about everything, mostly internally, although my wife probably has a record of some of that. But I began to fuss internally. Everything, everything looked wrong to me. You know, the, the church, what's wrong with the church? You know, what's wrong with these people? You know, the church needs to change. These people need to change. Well, if you know the Lord, you probably know where we went from there. He said, uh, John, who, who is it? Who is it who needs to change? <laughs> he said, John, you need to change. If you want the church to change, you must change. You go first. So that became a mantra for me over a period of time. You know, I began to realize that, that I must change. That I must change. I need Jesus to change me for the church to change. And that drove me deep, really deep into Nehemiah. <laughs> And Nehemiah has been a good friend of mine ever since. So the question before the house as we get started, and we'll look at this chapter in God's word, is are we willing to change? I've given you a long introduction because I think we need it. We really need our, our hearts to be set. Like, are we willing to change? Do, do you want God to make your heart a tender place where healthy change can be born and can grow to the glory of God. And I pray that if we are not willing, and there have been many times in my life where, where I was not willing, God is very patient, isn't he? <laughs> very persistent. And I pray that if we are not willing, God will make us willing. Lord, show us our need for you. So let's get to our text. Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll read the 11 verses of this chapter. Please follow along as I read. This is the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, 
While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The word of God. What do we see in this text that, that we need at a heart level when we are facing ruins in our lives or our homes or our churches? Well, I'm going to give you four things that I see here. And the first is we need a servant's heart. We need a servant's heart. You might have noticed the word servant or servants. It, it really pops up in that, that text, doesn't it? It appears eight times in these 11 verses. That tells you something about how Nehemiah sees himself, who he is and who his people are, that they're servants of the living God. And then he mentions at the end, and oh, by the way, I am a a servant to someone else. It's a servant to the king. At the end of verse 11, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. Could be a bartender, yeah. But what's a cupbearer? What does he do? He's the servant who drinks some of the king's wine before the king drinks it. Now, why? Well, because if the wine has been poisoned, uh, the cupbearer will drop dead, not the king. (laughs) What do you think about that job? You want to sign up for that job? It's not much job security. (laughs) What a job. Nehemiah's job was to serve the king in this one capacity. This was a job given only to a slave who was trustworthy, and Nehemiah had become known as that kind of servant. As the cupbearer, he was close to the king. He had a comfortable enough, relatively easy life, as long as no one dropped any poison into the king's wine. 
And Nehemiah could have lived out his life in the king's palace. Not a terrible life. But when he heard about the continuing disgrace of Jerusalem's broken down wall, his heart was stirred. He decided something had to be done about it. Even though he was a slave, even though he had a pretty decent life, uh, even though he had never been to Jerusalem, even though he had uh, these problems uh, of that faraway city did not really affect him directly, even so he decided that he must get involved somehow. You know what this means. This means that anyone can make a difference in the hands of God. Nehemiah, you, me, anyone. It doesn't matter your position in life. It doesn't matter how low your income is. It doesn't matter how limited you feel you are in experience or education or resources. If you are willing to live with the heart of a servant, God will use you. You'll be astonished. Are you willing to surrender your heart to the Lord Jesus as his servant first and foremost? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to rebuild whatever ruins you might be facing in your life or in your home or in your church? Are you willing to change? God uses humble servants. And he says in his word that he gives he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the humble servant will receive an outpouring of grace upon grace. It's kind of like the waves of the sea. You know, they just, they, they just pound on the shore. They keep coming and coming and coming. Grace upon grace is that way. God pours out exactly what the servant needs to carry out his task. Grace for the humble. We need a servant's heart. Second, we need a broken heart. We need a broken heart. And you may be thinking, no thank you. No thank you. It's too painful. Yes, it is. It's painful. But we need a broken heart. Nehemiah's brother Hanani came to visit him. He told Nehemiah that Jerusalem was in trouble and, and in disgrace is the word that's used. He said the wall is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And it broke Nehemiah's heart that no one had undertaken the rebuilding of the wall. That people were living in Jerusalem oblivious to their danger. Apathetic about their duties as citizens of Zion. And just helpless to get anything done. Verse 4 says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. It broke his heart. That's the kind of broken heart I'm talking about. <clears throat> Nehemiah cared so much about his people, so much about his homeland, and more than that, so much about the glory of God and the, the name of God being disgraced among the nations that it, it just made him weep. He just broke down and cried. What makes you cry? What breaks your heart? What pain do you feel about wrongs that need to be made right? Uh, what keeps you awake at night? 
These are the things that reach your heart, the center of you, that cause you to say, this isn't right, this can't go on, I can't ignore this anymore. It's what I call a kind of holy discontent. It's a holy discontent that that unsettles you and troubles you. God uses people who are willing to have a broken heart. Nobody goes out looking for a broken heart. (laughs) But to serve in this broken world, you're going to get a broken heart. You have to. A heart that is broken by what breaks the heart of God. So what breaks your heart? Do you know yet? I can tell you how it happens. It has a tendency to find you. Uh, much more so than you finding it. Uh, There will be a need to which God will begin to to call you to devote your time and your energy, and it will stir your spirit. It will ignite your soul. And I promise you, it will break your heart. It will get a hold of you, and it won't let you go. We need a servant's heart. We need a broken heart. Third, We need a praying heart. We need a praying heart. I'm deeply convicted as I speak on this point. And maybe you will be too. We need a praying heart. In response to the news that Jerusalem's uh, broken, the walls were broken down, Nehemiah said in verse 4, for some days, we don't know how long, It's, it's a season, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah could not forget about it. He could not ignore it. So he prayed. He fasted. He wept. So I want you to notice that Nehemiah did not just decide kind of out of the blue to do something about Jerusalem's ruined wall. Nehemiah's vision for the wall of Jerusalem came to him through prayer, a season of prayer. I think it's helpful to think of prayer itself as a necessary and cherished wall itself uh, as a, uh, in our lives. Uh, in other words, when we pray, it's as if we're entering into our souls, the most spiritually intimate chamber of life. Prayer is that still, small place where all the churning stops as you commune with God. It is that central place where everything else finds its connection. It's that quiet place where you not only speak to God, but you listen to him as well. You cannot pray very well and watch TV at the same time. You cannot pray very well and negotiate a business deal at the same time. You cannot pray and argue with someone very at the same time. Serious prayer is when you enter into quiet communion with God alone. Just as a house needs walls, so does your soul need walls. And prayer is the wall that creates the space where you encounter the Lord and his will for you, his mission for you. Without prayer, your soul will easily disappear into the storms of life, into the meanness of the world, and into your own lusts and cravings. We need a servant's heart. We need a broken heart. We need a praying heart. Fourth and finally, 
We need an accountable heart. We need an accountable heart. You know, it's, it's easy to identify problems. It's also easy to propose solutions. You know, someone needs to talk to those dropouts and help them stay in school. Someone needs to go to the lost people in our city and tell them about Jesus. Someone needs to do this. Someone needs to do that. Someone. It's easy to see problems and propose solutions. Many people can do that. But few people are willing to make themselves accountable for it. Accountable to God and accountable to others. I'm afraid that too often uh, we operate uh, like consultants on the church's problems instead of catalysts uh, who are brokenhearted about the church's problems. And we make ourselves accountable to serve God's solutions, whatever that may require of us. We don't set the terms. We simply serve the mission. I think accountability needs our attention these days. It's ignored. Many, many of us have drifted from being accountable to God or to others. By nature, I think we fear accountability. We don't want it. We want to be a free agent. <laughs> we want to do life our own way, not letting people into our lives, not being part of a small group, not wanting to become a member of the church. We don't want people messing around in our lives. And if we're honest, we don't really want God messing around in our lives either. So we run from accountability, don't we? But a loss of accountability, it's a deadly danger to the soul. Can we take steps toward honest accountability? Not accountability in appearance or name only, but, but in reality and in truth. And that's what Nehemiah did. He made himself accountable. He went on record. He risked his life. After days of fasting, mourning, and praying, Nehemiah said in verses 6 and 7, listen to this. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. Oh, he got convicted of sin in that season of prayer, didn't he? And he's saying, Lord, I take full responsibility, not only for my actions, but for our actions. I take responsibility, uh, responsibility for things that happened before I was born. Ooh, that's accountable. <laughs> full responsibility for our negligence, for the role we have played in this disaster we find ourselves in, in exile. So he includes himself in the mess. He doesn't stand apart from it and said, yeah, they did some bad things back then. He said, no, no, I own this mess. It's mine. I was part of creating it. And he's also saying, Lord, in your mercy, I'm asking you to make this broken situation right. And please, please use me somehow. He doesn't see a way, but he prays for a way. He prays in verse 11, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And that man, of course, is the king. From that point on, 
here's what happens in the rest of the book of Nehemiah. Spoiler alert, you know, close your ears if you don't want to hear this. Nehemiah talks with the king. He lives. He travels hundreds of miles. He endures opposition. He puts in long hours. He pays a steep personal price. And he gets the ruined wall rebuilt. But again, none of that starts out there. It all starts in here. It all starts in here. It starts in the heart. A willingness to live with a servant's heart, with a broken heart, with a praying heart, with an accountable heart. Now, <clears throat> none of those heart qualities come to us naturally or automatically. They don't just happen. <laughs> they come to us through the work of God upon our hearts. So as you walk with Nehemiah in the weeks and months ahead, he will start to feel very familiar to you. And I, that's mainly because Nehemiah is an Old Testament type of Jesus Christ. In other words, you seek something of Christ through him. So Nehemiah foreshadows the heart and the mission of the Messiah who would come one day uh, to save us from our ruins, <laughs> to save us from our sin, uh, and to lead us home through the dark. So think about Jesus. He came, just what we've been talking about, he came as a servant. He left his heavenly home and he humbled himself to take on the nature of a man, yet without sin. But he humbled himself to take on, more than that, the nature of a servant. A servant, he humbled himself. But he came as a broken servant, a, a, a suffering servant. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace with God fell on him. And by his wounds we are healed. He's a suffering servant whose heart was broken over our sin. But he also came as a, as a praying son. Oh, he, he was praying. He was always talking with his heavenly father. The, the busier he got, the more he slipped away to, to pray. There are so many humorous passages in the Gospels where people are essentially saying, hey, has anybody seen Jesus? We, we can't find him. Oh, he's over praying. He's just, he slipped away to talk to his heavenly father, to get his bearings again, you know, to, to, to get his mission clear again, to stay on mission. As a praying son in fellowship with his heavenly father. And then he came as a son accountable to his heavenly father's mission. He said, here I am, father, to do your will. In the garden, he prayed, not my will, father, but your will be done. And he carried that accountability all the way to it is finished on the cross. It is finished. Father, the mission of salvation you gave me. It is finished. It is accomplished. So in that salvation work that Jesus did with a whole heart to save us from our sin and our ruins, Jesus fulfilled all that we see in the heart and the service of Nehemiah. So do you see? Uh, do you hear this good news? This is really, really good news for us. Uh, you know, Jesus came to save you from your sin. 
to restore your ruined condition and to give you that same heart to serve the purposes of your heavenly Father in this sad and broken, fallen world. So, you know, here's the challenge. Will you be the next Nehemiah as you walk with Jesus in your family, in your church, in your community, in your neighborhood, where you work, where you go to school? You can serve with such a broken heart that God will use you to rebuild what is broken. And you will see God bring dignity back to what is disgraced. Well, there's a lot of disgrace in our world today. And often it finds our way, its way to us, doesn't it? I mean, so often our, our lives are a disgrace. Our marriages can become a disgrace. Our, our home life can become a disgrace. Uh, our work ethics can become a disgrace. Our relationships can become a disgrace. But God, never forget those two words, but God, you know, those words appear everywhere throughout the pages of scripture. They, they might be the best words in the Bible, <laughs> but God, don't leave God out of the picture. Never leave God out of the picture, but God who is rich in mercy in Jesus Christ. God has grace for you in Christ. Grace to replace the disgrace, isn't that great? He has grace to replace the disgrace. Jesus, Jesus is a master at this. He will meet you right where you are. You don't have to clean yourself up. You can't. You don't have to get yourself into a better place. You can't. Jesus will meet you right where you are. In your brokenness, he will meet you there. And he will use you. But only if you're willing to have a heart that is tender and pliable in his hands. Are you willing? Are you willing? Just as every church has seasons where uh, rebuilding is necessary, so does every life. And maybe you are at such a place today. Maybe renovation needs to be done in your marriage, in your parenting, in your career, in your relationships, in your finances, or in how you care for your body. Maybe you've been deferring maintenance on one or more of those areas for far too long. And now it's time to get God's blueprints for a new way of living. If you launch into making those changes, you will go through all the stages of renovation that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. You will get a vision for how life would look when it's God's way, not your way. Uh, you will begin to count the cost of rebuilding. There will, be, there will be some pain involved. And then you'll start the hard and stressful work of, of actually making those changes on a day-by-day -day basis. But here's the point. Those changes must be made from the inside out. Otherwise, your life is not truly being renovated. You're, you're merely rearranging the same old furniture on the surface of your life of your life. It's like, you know, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as it's going down. It's not that helpful, right? We need change from the inside out. And, and, and the call of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it goes so deep. It, it refuses to stay on the surface of our lives. Isn't that great? The call of God in the gospel says this, my son, 
my daughter, give me your heart. My son, my daughter, give me your heart. Give me yourself. Give me who you are all the way. The heart must be freely and fully given to the Lord Jesus Christ. No holds barred or no lasting change will ever happen. You'll find that you'll be stuck in the ruins with you. And that is not enough. I don't mean to offend you, but, you know, if you're stuck in the ruins and you're stuck with you there, it, it's not enough. It's, it's not enough. We all need God at work in our lives all the time. And to cooperate with him in the process of seeing life change from the inside out, you have to pray all the way through. You, you have to begin with prayer or, or you'll never find his vision you, you have to pray over the cost or it will always be too much. You have to pray through all the messy renovations and changes or you will lose heart. Prayer is the only way to stay in communion with God, the master builder of your life and your home and your church. He will be with you. That's his promise. He will never leave you or forsake you. And it will be his power that drives the rebuilding, the renovations. It will be his grace that sustains you, especially when it's hard. And that just takes us back to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that saves us from our sin and makes us right with God when we trust in Christ as our Savior. But you know, that's not the end of the gospel working in our lives. That's just the beginning. We, we, we get saved and now the gospel goes to work. The spirit goes to work. The word of God goes to work. And uh, changes begin. And it's always the power of God at work in those changes, in us and through us and for us through Christ our Lord. So God is not done with you. You may have times when you feel that way, but God is not done with you. He's not done with your church. He loves you too much to stop now. He's invested quite a bit in you for eternity, right? So get ready. Your God is on the move, and we need to move with him. Get ready to get to the rebuilding of whatever it is that may be ruined that you are facing. And God himself will be your help and your hope every step of the way. May the Lord bless you richly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, you meet us in the ruins. And our ruins do not drive you away. It's precisely our ruins that, that drew you to us because we needed you. We needed a savior. Forgive us, Lord, for camping in the ruins and thinking that things will never be any different. I'm just stuck with this. Lord, show us yourself, your heart, your love, your grace, your truth, your mercy, to make things different that we could never make different in our own power. But you are the great and mighty God, the God of heaven and earth. Thank you, Lord, that we can pour out our hearts to you. Thank you for giving us your word. And, and we see in this part of your word a man in difficult circumstances, and yet you used him. 
Lord, we pray the same for each one of us. Uh, Lord, let us uh, never write you out of the picture. Surprise us, Lord, with what you want to do in our lives and in our homes and in our churches. For your glorious name we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from